The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening, An Intolerable Tolerance, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And this evening in our study of Revelation, we've now been afforded the privilege of considering the Lord's address to the church at Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira was a relatively insignificant city in a relatively insignificant place. Uh, Thyatira was formerly a military outpost for the Roman Empire in Asia and has since become what amounts to a blue-collar town in Asia at the time. They were producing basically blue-collar goods, blue-collar services in the region. Uh, Thyatira was known at that time for uh, textiles like wool and linen. Uh, They produced a fine burnished bronze in Thyatira that became in high demand. And they also produced uh, what amounted to a a less expensive form of purple dye. Purple dye was in high demand at the time. And if you remember from uh, Acts chapter 16, Lydia was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Right? So we see an example of that uh, even in Lydia, as Lydia was doing business in Philippi. Uh, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. And we know that to be the case in every uh, act of conversion, don't we? The only one anyone can heed anything spoken of by the word of God, the only way that we can heed is to have our hearts open. That's what the Lord did for Lydia, a uh, seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. So being a a blue-collar town then, doing some blue-collar work, providing some blue-collar services in Thyatira, uh, Thyatira had built a a stable system of trade. Uh, It was a stable trade town. And wherever there was that established system of trade in the Roman Empire, you would expect to find, woven into the very fabric of the culture there, a system of trade guilds. Guilds were very commonplace in the Roman Empire at this time, very commonplace in Thyatira. The guilds, trade guilds, weren't exclusively formed for business purposes, although that's what they were. Uh, They were for business purposes, but the guilds weren't exclusively business-oriented, much, much like we see corporations now doing in our own day. The guilds became increasingly social. They became increasingly involved in societal concerns, uh, and the guilds became increasingly religious, like corporations in our day becoming increasingly anti-religious. Really, they're not becoming increasingly anti-religious. The the guilds, so to speak, or corporations in our day are selling, peddling a form of secular humanism, which is the religion of our age. It is a religion, and they're peddling this false religion. And now corporations in our own day are doing the very same kinds of things that the guilds were doing in the first century. In our day, uh, corporations and businesses peddling false religion, secular humanism. In the first century, that false religion peddled by the guilds was the Roman pantheon of gods, as we've known, and the cult of emperor worship. Uh, Each guild would have its own patron deity. So instead of, you know, going to an elk's lodge or going to a Masonic lodge like many might do in our own day or going down to the bars on Church Street after work on a Friday night, guild members would gather at a common temple 
gathered at a common temple, they would eat meat sacrificed to idols. In other words, they were uh, participating in idolatrous worship. And they would take a world with a temple prostitute and then call it an evening and go home. Right? That's essentially the life of a guildsman in the first century. And so the guilds became central. They became a central part of not only business in a particular area, but also central to economic life and social life and even the religious character of uh, society. And so for disciples of Jesus Christ then, if you can imagine, members of the Lord's church, the guilds represented a godless and depraved world system that had fallen under the sway of the wicked one a depraved world system under the power of Satan that hated and persecuted God's people. The guilds, everything to do with the guilds, their practices, their religion, their idolatry, standing opposed to God's truth. That world system and the way that that was formulated, the way that that was structured and set up, that world system would soon in the book of Revelation be referred to as the whore of Babylon the whore of Babylon. Revelation chapter 18, the whore of Babylon described as the mother of harlots. That world system with all of, all of its idolatry and all of its materialism and its worldliness and worldly philosophies was considered a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. The kings of the earth are described as committing fornication with her, and in her hand she's described as having a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Right? That's how she's described. That's how that, that world system is described uh, on the pages of Scripture in the book of Revelation as this harlot, this filthy harlot uh, entrenched in her fornication. So it's in the book of Revelation that we're going to see this godless world system eventually raised to the ground when the Son of Man is seen coming on the clouds with a sharp sickle in his hand. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put an end to that evil world system, and all the saints will sing in praise to God at the fall of the whore of Babylon. Well, it's in the, it's in the spirit, if you will, of that coming judgment, if you, if you think about that coming judgment and the Lord's soon judgment upon the harlot Babylon, it's in the spirit of that coming judgment that the Lord now addresses the church at Thyatira. In Revelation chapter 2, in verse 18, we read, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, and to the angel, meaning, meaning by the hand of the heavenly or angelic messenger that it was assigned with to Thyatira, in other words, that message coming from the, the very throne room of heaven, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Interesting, in this section of the book, it's the only time that the title Son of God is used in the book of Revelation. The only time. That was a title that was uh, frequently used by John, our author here, um, frequently used by John in the, the Gospel of John, frequently used by John in his epistles, but the only time here in the book of the Revelation. Uh, it's a favored title of John because it emphasized the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And it's reminiscent, if you will, it echoes 
the one who addressed Daniel, if you remember Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, uh, referring to the time of the end. When one came with eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, telling Daniel of the time of the end. The title son of God also would have been in direct contrast to a local guild god. Uh, Patron deity of a local guild in Thyatira thought to be the son of Zeus. His name was Apollo Tyramnaeus. Apollo Tyramnaeus, whom the locals referred to as the son of God. You found Apollo Tyramnaeus, his image imprinted on coins, even with that nomenclature, the son of God on the coins. Well, we know that's a complete farce, don't we? There is no other. (laughs) There's only one son of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ refers to himself here as the son of God in direct contradiction to the locals and the guild gods. There is no other. The Lord Jesus Christ himself holds exclusive right to that title. And so that's why I think the Lord here refers to himself by that title, Revelation chapter 2. He is the one, is the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, meaning that no one escapes his judgment. Uh, No one escapes his omniscient gaze. He is the one who searches the hearts. He has feet like fine brass. They produced fine brass or fine bronze in Thyatira. He is the one with feet like fine brass, meaning that he has righteous power, uh, that he is just in trampling his enemies underfoot. And why is it, when you think about those two descriptions of the Son of God now, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, both depictions, if you will, of his right to judge. Why is this the way that the Lord addresses the church then at Thyatira? As though in warning or as a threat, if you will, of coming judgment. Here's why. Because the world, that harlot Babylon, Because the world that is to be judged and destroyed with the brightness of his coming, that world is the world that has leached itself into the church at Thyatira and has defiled the church with her fornication, right? So the Lord addresses her, the church at Thyatira, as one who has eyes like a flame of fire, as one who has feet like fine brass. We see the whore of Babylon referred to by name as having a tolerated place in the church in Thyatira, and her name is Jezebel. The spirit of Jezebel, alive and well, in the church at Thyatira, and she is up to her old tricks, so to speak. Jezebel, Jezebel was the notoriously wicked Sidonian wife of Ahab, king of Israel. Israelites weren't to take foreign wives. Foreign wives were banned because they would lead Israel, lead their kings and lead Israel by consequence into idolatry. And she was, uh, she was a Sidonian and King Ahab took Jezebel as his wife. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, in the Old Testament, king over the northern tribes of Israel after their split with Judah. Jeroboam had led all of Israel into idolatrous worship by setting up foreign altars. Jeroboam had fashioned two golden calves. What does that sound like? Right? He had fashioned two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, 
And Jeroboam persuaded the people to worship on the high places in Bethel and Dan rather than in Jerusalem. Jeroboam thought that the people worshiping in Jerusalem, that he might lose them to Judah and that they wouldn't stay in Israel. So Jeroboam, Jeroboam, uh, in defiance of God's commands, in defiance of God, set up two foreign altars in Dan and in Bethel to entice the people to idolatry. He ordained priests that were not Levites, They offered sacrifices to the calves, and they offered them on the high places, and he ordained feasts on his own days. Jeroboam essentially made up his own religion, a religion in direct opposition to the true worship of God. And as the scriptures say, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, That is uh, an understatement, if you will. Listen to what God says about King Ahab Years later, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, listen. Now Ahab, King Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, including Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. So as if it were a trivial thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, King Ahab took Jezebel as his wife. How notoriously wicked was this woman, right? How notoriously wicked was Jezebel? Leading Israel into idolatry was considered to be trivial as compared to marrying her. (laughs) It was through Jezebel that Israel was once again ensnared in Baal worship. Within Israel, after the marriage of Ahab to Jezebel, within Israel, they were building temples and altars to Baal. Within Israel, they were worshiping the Asherahs. All Israel was committing fornication with the whore of Babylon. Remember, all of this led to the the confrontation, if you will, between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal when he digs the trench around the altar and God sends forth fire from out of heaven, right? They ended up, Jehu ends up cleansing Israel of Baal worship by killing all the uh, prophets of Baal. But it all got started here with Ahab's. Israel worshiped Baal under the judges, under the judges. They had just entered the promised land and Israel already began to compromise with the judges. But having driven Baal worship out of Israel, having cleansed Israel of her Baal worship, they're back at it under Ahab and his wife Jezebel. So by the time we get to then the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, there is a woman in the church and her children, verse 23, channeling the spirit, if you will, of Jezebel and corrupting the Israel of God. She's acting like this Jezebel of old. It's more than likely that the Lord refers to her as Jezebel rather than Jezebel being her actual name. Can you imagine? But because she's, what she's doing in the Lord's church is exactly what Jezebel of old was doing in Israel, uh, the Lord refers to her as Jezebel. Everybody knows who he's talking about. Everybody knows who this woman would have been. Whether that's her actual name or not, She's acting like the Jezebel of old and corrupting of the Israel of God in the church at Thyatira. She is leading the people of God into idolatry and down a path that will eventuate in their judgment. And what is the church in Thyatira doing about it? What is the church doing? Like Pergamos, they appear to be doing nothing. 
They appear to be tolerating it. Worse than nothing, the church at Thyatira is described as actually allowing her to teach and to seduce. To teach and to seduce. Now before the Lord gets into his uh, condemnation of her actions and the church's failure in Thyatira, the Lord actually begins his letter, his address to the church at Thyatira, with a commendation in verse 19. Look at verse 19. The Lord begins, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Again, the Lord says, I know. He is omniscient. He's the one who knows the heart. He knows his church. He knows this church, right? He says, I know works of love, works of service, faith, and patience, or endurance. That's apparent from the Greek that these are intended as couplets. Love and service, faith and endurance. Those often go together, right? In love they serve, and in faith they endure. And in the book of Revelation, those couplets, in particular faith and endurance, are qualities that are often mentioned in the context of a faithful witness for Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution. In other words, God's people in the midst of persecution must be faithful to endure, faithful in love, faithful in works, faithful in their patience or their endurance. Uh, Look at chapter 13. Let me give you an example of this. Flip over to Revelation 13. Look there at verse 9, Revelation chapter 13, verse 9. The beast that rises from the sea in Revelation 13, 9 is given authority to make war with the saints, given authority to overcome the saints. There's a reason for that. We'll discuss that when we get there. And in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, this is in the context of the beast waging war against the saints and overcoming them. And the Lord says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. You see the context of that couplet, right? You see the context of those words. The context of those words is the faithful endurance of the saints under great persecution, under um, tremendous tribulation. Endurance and faith refer to those qualities of those who are not given to compromise, those who are not turned away from Jesus Christ, even under persecution of the beast, right? Look at chapter 14, one chapter over. Chapter 14, look there at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now that's a warning for the church at Thyatira. Don't compromise with that whore of Babylon. Uh, Don't compromise with the teachings of Jezebel. Don't do it. The one who receives the mark of the beast on his forehead or on his hand will share with those who dwell on the earth will share with the world in the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. They'll not escape judgment. Okay? We're not to compromise with this world. We're not to compromise with this world system. We're not to compromise with the sins of Jezebel. Listen, it says, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have, this, by the way, is an argument against annihilationism. 
right? Against the notion that when someone dies, they simply cease to exist. No. Someone either lives eternally in, uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, lives eternally in the new heavens and the new earth, or they live eternally in the lake which burns with fire. They live eternally in hell. They shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who persevere, if you will, or are faithful to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Endurance is seen as remaining faithful to the commandments of God and faithful to the faith, the the content of our faith, the faith of Jesus. Not given to error, but faithful to the faith, right? Not given to compromise, not turning away from the word of truth, running after every Jezebel that comes along, but faithful to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, even in the midst of a world that hates us especially in the midst of a world that hates us, amen? When things get difficult, when we face persecution, persecution is coming, difficulty is coming. We, we face difficulty and adversity and persecution in our own ways now, and it's not easy, right? That's, that's not uh, easy, and it's easy to compromise, easy to turn away even from a harsh word or a slammed door or an angry person that you're attempting to witness to, but we're to be a faithful witness. And these words, again, faithful and patient are terms that are used in the context of a Christian's witness for Jesus Christ with a lost world, right? Preaching the gospel faithfully, witnessing for Jesus Christ faithfully to the lost without compromise, right? Without shrinking back, a faithful witness, even in the midst of a world that hates it, especially in the midst of a world that hates it, even in the midst of persecution. Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Their works conceived of as those works which persist in faithful endurance as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ under persecution. So the church in Thyatira then, back in Revelation 2, the church at Thyatira is a loving church. It's an evangelistic church. It's a church that preaches the gospel. It's an enduring church. It's enduring in its witness to this lost world as a light that shines in a dark place. In the midst of adversity, the church continues in love to serve one another, right? They're loving and they're working and they're serving to serve those uh, inside the church in love and to serve those outside the church in love with, as a witness to the gospel. They patiently endure trials and tribulations as they hold fast to the faith. They're not growing weary, in other words, in their well-doing. Right? They're remaining steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the Lord commends them for it. Back in Revelation 2.19, not only have their works of love, service, and faith endured, and endured under exceedingly difficult circumstances, the, the last works are more than their first. In other words, they're growing. They're abounding in these graces. This is a commendation, isn't it? A, a good commendation from the Lord. In contrast to the church at Ephesus who had forsaken her first love and had abandoned those first works as zealous witnesses for the Lord in hostile territory, the latter works of those genuine Christians in Thyatira have even surpassed their first works. 
they've proven themselves to be growing and maturing and zealous and faithful and abounding in these works, abounding in their witness for Jesus Christ. And this really is a tremendous testimony of persevering faith, a tremendous testimony. However, what has proven to be true of their witness to the outside world and of their their work with respect to being witnesses for Jesus Christ, what has proven to be true is revealed in the context of a very serious cancer growing within the church. Very similar to what we saw in Pergamos, isn't it? Very similar. And a commendation of their works quickly turns to a condemnation of their compromise. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So while the church appeared to be very faithful in storming the gates of Hades, as it were, with the light of the gospel, it's also apparent that Satan is at work within the church herself, as it were, leading apostates into darkness. And he's at work in the church through a woman named Jezebel, not unlike the work that he was doing in Israel uh, by Jezebel of old. Likely not a real name again, but certain a certain reference. That's the issue at hand. This Jezebel becomes intimately linked with that Jezebel of old, the Jezebel that we were introduced to in the Old Testament. This woman, this is a woman who referred to herself as a prophetess, someone who spoke for God to the people of God. That's what a prophet did. She considered herself to be a prophetess, someone with the authority to speak for God to the people of God. Maybe they were unwilling to dispute her claim. Uh, Maybe they were unwilling or unable to deny her claim. Uh, Those that were in Ephesus tested those who were apostles and found found them to be liars. Apparently, the church at Thyatira was unable to find Jezebel herself here to be a liar unable to deny her claim, the church at Thyatira has actually allowed this Jezebel to teach. And through her teaching to planao, literally to lead astray or deceive the Lord's servants. The word is translated there to seduce. I think that's a good word to use with respect to the the work of Jezebel in this church. She was leading astray, deceiving The Lord's servants. Notice the use of the possessive in verse 20. My servants. They are mine. And that woman Jezebel is at work in the church leading my servants astray. The Lord refers to them not as members of the church or even as disciples, but rather refers to them as his doulos, his slaves. And what is she leading them astray with? Jezebel is leading them astray with the idolatry and the culture that is around them. Particularly, as we've talked about tonight, the idolatry and the culture of the guilds. Their sins identified as committing sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Both of those associated with temple worship, or both of them associated with pagan idolatry or pagan temple worship. We see the same admonition in Acts 15. Tell the Gentiles, 
Put no further burdens upon them. Tell them not to eat things sacrificed to idols uh, or to uh, stop committing uh, sexual immorality and don't eat meat with the blood, right? These are things that were done in idolatry, in idol temples. Uh, these would have been done by those who participated in the idol worship of the guilds. Certainly, the, the list of freedoms that Christians have or the list of things that would have been indifferent to Jezebel, that list would have been long and varied. Right? To Jezebel, the things that we could get away with would have been a lengthy list. We can get away with anything. If you can eat or participate in pagan idolatry, participate in the sexual immorality associated with pagan idolatry, then that list of things indifferent to this prophetess, so-called Jezebel, would have been very long and, and varied indeed. But the Lord sums up her seduction, sums up her error with those two elements. And I would submit to you that the reason that he does that is because those two elements are most associated with worldly or cultural compromise. Those two elements are most associated with the work or the pagan idolatry of the guilds. Participating in those sins was participating in idolatry associated with the trade guilds, thereby entering into the idolatry of this pagan world. That's interesting that Jezebel does this. You know, the Lord says in the Old Testament of false prophets, Lord says of those uh, false prophets in the Old Testament, they ran when he had not called them. They spoke when they were not sent. Right? They weren't sent by God. God did not know them. God did not call them. God did not send them. But they ran anyway. And then the Lord says something very interesting of false prophets in the Old Testament. He says that if they had spoken his word to his people then they, even those false prophets, would have turned God's people from their sin. Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. We could say the same thing of Jezebel, couldn't we? That if she had stood on the word of God and had preached the word of God to the people of God, then even that prophetess, so-called, that fake prophetess, that liar Jezebel, if she was speaking God's word, then God's word would have turned God's people from their sin. What is Jezebel doing? By contrast, she's leading God's people into sin, leading God's people into idolatry, leading God's people to eat things offered to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Jezebel, you can see, is wicked to her core. The historical Jezebel wasn't only queen to that evil King Ahab, she was the queen of self-indulgence, right? teaching God's people to indulge themselves. If you want something for yourself, then you are entitled to take it for yourself. That's the spirit of Jezebel. Rather than deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ, we're saved by grace through, alone, through faith alone. So indulge yourself. You're entitled, Jezebel would have said. And that kind of spirit personified or, or, or summarized, if you will, by those two elements of eating things offered to idols and sexual immorality. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Jezebel would have said, absolutely. Absolutely. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. Naboth wouldn't give it to him. Ahab pouts about it. So Jezebel plots his murder and simply takes the vineyard for Ahab. God says of Jezebel that the dogs will eat her flesh 
and her corpse will be left by the dogs as refuge, refuse on the field at Jezreel. That's what's going to happen to Jezebel. And that's what God thinks of Jezebel's compromise. Do you see? That's what God thinks of Jezebel's error. It's what God thinks of Jezebel's idolatry. Of Jezebel's children, those who will give themselves to her errors, those who will participate in her sins, these, the Lord says, he will kill with death. It's interesting again here, the Lord uses that title, the Son of God, and again, only here in the book of Revelation to refer to himself, the Son of God, in all all the book of Revelation, only here. At the end of this address to the church at Thyatira, there's also uh, an address or a reference to Psalm 2. We'll get there uh, next week when he is referred to as the Son as well, right? He's referred to as the Son in Psalm 2. But there's also an allusion to the use of that title Uh, an echo, if you will, to Daniel chapter 3. And if you remember again in our study of Daniel, we won't take the time to go there, but I commend it to your study. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded by statute uh, from the king to bow down and worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had erected to himself. They They were commanded to bow to the golden statue. Now this is uh, not unlike confessing Caesar as Lord in the first century or burning incense on an altar to Caesar, uh, right? They were essentially commanding, the Roman Empire was commanding the same kind of idolatry as Nebuchadnezzar all those centuries ago. Uh, It wasn't uh, unlike compromising your witness for fear of repudiation in our own century, right? If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been cowards, what might they have done? they might have bowed down to the golden statue and let bygones be bygones and gone about with their lives, right? But they weren't cowards. They did not shrink back. They could not compromise with the idolatry of this world. Those in the first century uh, who are faithful would not compromise with the idolatry of this world. Those who are faithful today will not compromise their witness for Jesus Christ because of the idolatry or the philosophies or the angst or the repudiation or the rejection of this world. They won't shrink back. Well, these three men, they refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and they were cast into a fiery furnace heated to seven times its normal temperature. Heated seven times, right? That's a symbolic number there, even in Daniel chapter 3, representing completion. It means that they heated it uh, to as hot as they could get it, Uh, hot as hot as it could be. And when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, when they put the guys in the furnace, the, the guys who opened the door, they themselves were killed by the heat. That's how hot it was. When Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, there was a fourth man, a fourth who was walking among them. One, he said, like the Son of God, walking in the midst of the flames with them, and they were unhurt. Where Daniel refused to live as this world lives, when according to his own conscience, he refused to compromise with this world, refused to indulge his flesh, refused to compromise with what Daniel knew to be sin. And when Daniel's friends refused to bow to the king's absurd idol, when they would rather die than compromise, Jezebel and those that follow her into sin justify their compromise with notions of grace. It's the only way that you can get away with it. They would justify their compromise with notions of liberty. They would believe and 
teach that it's perfectly acceptable to participate in those things that our brothers and sisters throughout history have died to refuse, right? Have suffered to refuse. And yet in our day, in this day of compromise, in this day of toleration, where basically the only sin of our age is intolerance, right? The only sin anymore, the only sin of this world, the sin of secular humanism is intolerance, Everyone compromises. The church is given over, as it were, the professing church, given over to compromise. Everyone compromises. They justify their compromise with notions of grace. They use grace as a cloak for lasciviousness. They use their liberty as a cloak for vice, a covering for sin, They make excuses for immorality, justifications for living just like the world around us lives. Such that today, you tell me if it's not true, that for a vast majority, a vast, overwhelming majority of the professing church looks no different than the world. Really. Their music looks no different. Their entertainment looks no different. Their dating looks no different. Their immorality looks no different. And the professing church is like a worldly club, like a pagan, idolatrous guild for Jezebels and Ahabs. Adulterers and adulteresses, those who make themselves friends of this world, are enemies of God. And that's what the spirit of Jezebel is doing in the church at Thyatira. And I would submit to you, that's what the spirit of Jezebel is doing in the church today. Seducing this seductress, this whore, seducing God's people into idolatry, into worldliness, into compromise, committing fornication with the whore of Babylon herself. We can commit this abomination in a multitude of ways. In Thyatira, compromise in attending a guild festival. Compromise would be participating in guild activities. Something someone would do to preserve their their livelihood or to protect themselves from persecution. That was represented by committing sexual immorality or eating things sacrificed to idols. It was tantamount to idolatrous worship. And that's what it would have looked like in Thyatira. In our day... It could easily, easily be seen in, in going to that office party with the boss, going out, getting a little drunk with the guys, flirting with that trollop in HR, laughing at all their dirty jokes, participating in all their dirty schemes. Do you see? Withholding from them your witness for the gospel for fear that you might jeopardize your reputation among them. That's what participating in the guilds was all about in the first century. They went because they didn't want to lose their job. They didn't want to lose their livelihood. Compromise with this world in order to, to get ahead. That's an obvious parallel, isn't it? We can see the, the parallel between those two circumstances. But we, listen, we exhibit the same Jezebel spirit when we brazenly compromise with sin to indulge our flesh. Same Jezebel spirit, somehow justifying it, shutting off or silencing your conscience in order to participate in this thing that you want, this sin that you want? When you make excuses for 
pornography, when you entertain any thought of that trollop in HR, right? When you refuse to preach the gospel because you esteem your own reputation more than you esteem his reputation. When you participate in any false worship. As with Pergamos, the rebuke is leveled against the church for tolerating this attitude. Jezebel's going to get hers. Right? She's going to be thrown into a sickbed. We'll come to that next week. Her children are going to be killed. Right? Jezebel is going to be judged by God. He's going to judge each one according to their works. Right? But the rebuke here, the condemnation, is a condemnation of their tolerance in Thyatira for allowing this so-called prophetess to teach and to seduce the Lord's servants, to lead them astray for allowing that Jezebel to continue her, her deadly influence. We must be faithful, faithful against compromise. Husbands, don't let Jezebel into your homes. Right? Don't let some so-called prophetess, don't let her onto your bookshelves. Don't let her into your wife's podcasts. Right? Don't let Jezebel into your homes. Certainly don't let Jezebel into our church, anyone like her. We must be vigilant to deal with sin, and not only to deal with sin, but to deal with error. We have a responsibility to hold to truth. We're to be the ground, the pillar and the ground of truth. We are the Lord's church. And when the Lord's word, when God's word is preached to God's people, God's people turn from their sin. It bears fruit. And we must preach God's word to God's people. We must care nothing for the scorn and derision of a compromised so-called church that would slander us for doing those things. We have to learn to care nothing. We've been taught to care nothing. We're continuing to be taught to care nothing. For so-called churches that when our church takes a stand and practices discipline, as the Lord has called us to practice discipline, when our church takes a stand for truth and we put out Jezebels and when we put out Ahabs and when the so-called church in this world, the compromised church, which is full of Jezebels and Ahabs, then turns their scorn and derision upon us for doing exactly what the Lord has called us to do and doing that as faithfully as we know how with a clear conscience before God, we have to expect that scorn. We have to expect that derision. And we have to walk in faithfulness to the Lord's commands. The Lord loves his church. And the Lord knows what's good for us. So we have to do what the Lord has called us to do and not to fear or to compromise under the weight of their scorn or derision. We serve the Lord Christ. Amen? We have another master. And thus says the one who has eyes like a flame of fire cannot hide from his gaze. He's the one who searches the heart. More on this next week as we finish this text. Brothers and sisters, let's remain faithful to the Lord. Amen. Let's not entertain that woman or any of her ilk in the Lord's church here. And praise God, he has protected us and preserved us through that comp from that compromise uh, in years prior. And we need to pray that he'll continue to preserve us and protect us as we go forward. Pray with me. 
Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for the fact that you have indeed, Lord, preserved us and protected us. And you've corrected us and rebuked us and you've encouraged us and you've emboldened us and you've strengthened us and you've matured us. You've taught us, Lord, we're grateful for your work uh, among this lampstand. I'm grateful for your work here among the stars at this uh, church, the lights that shine in a dark place. And grateful, Lord, that in all of this, you have um, preserved us in peace, preserved us in unity. You've preserved us in joy and hope and love and faith. So grateful, Lord, for what you have done. We acknowledge these things as perfect gifts from you. Acknowledge you as entirely and solely the source of them and pray, Lord, that you'd be gracious uh, to continue uh, them among us and cause us even, Lord, to abound in them to your glory. Protect us from the Jezebels and the Ahabs that would seek to seduce your people. Uh, Protect us from error. Protect us from sin. Lord, protect us from the influence of this world uh, that would seek to um, force our compromise uh, while our enemies gloat. Uh, Protect us, Lord, from that and help us, Lord, to be faithful, even in the midst of great difficulty, especially in the midst of great difficulty. Help us to be faithful to you, faithful to the word of God, faithful to your commandments. Help us to keep the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ to the end. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.